0: Okay, I'm here today, very excited and delighted to be joined by Greg Thomas. Greg, thank you for taking the time this morning to speak with me and the Buddhist Geeks.
1: Vince, thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to our conversation ever since we met in Canada um, for the Ten Directions Integral um, Next Stage Facilitation uh, work with Diane Musho Hamilton and others. And uh, thanks
0: again for inviting me. Yeah, my my absolute pleasure. It was such a cool thing to meet you and your partner uh, and wife, uh, Jewel Kinch Thomas there. Um, I really feel like I learned a lot from our personal exchanges, you know, going back and forth together, uh, you know, over dinner and over some great food. <laughs> exactly. With the best way to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's right, <laughs> and and I just so much appreciated hearing about this unique kind of background that you that you um, your story really your 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 life. Um, I was fascinated by your connection, your personal connection to the sort of jazz lineage um, through Albert Murray, who you mentioned was a mentor of yours, and Ralph Ellison. Um, some really famous and important names in the world of jazz. Um, and, you know, I'm such a neophyte when it comes to this stuff. So I really, I don't know much about the history here, but I understand that's a big part of your background is as a historian and critic of, of jazz. Um, and you do some amazing work through your jazz leadership project, along with Jewel, um, using jazz to help Um, bring certain principles to life in terms of how we actually operate in the world and through our business, um, through our, through our lives. So I, am just fascinated by that. That's a huge, that just by itself, this is so fascinating and interesting. And then on top of that, you mentioned Diane Musho Hamilton and this integral facilitator training. So you also have a background as I do in integral theory and the work uh, of Ken Wilber. He's a a really important part of this theoretical body of work. Um, and, And, and so we have, also, there's this sort of integral background, uh, and, and you've really spent a lot of time uh, using that model, it sounds like, to help with your kind of thinking about a number of interrelated issues. And then, of course, as a black man living in America, which, you know, that doesn't seem like a great place to be right now. Uh, maybe it hasn't been ever. Um, you know, you're sitting at the intersection of race, of all these cultural Movements. There's been huge cultural change going on since the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, it's mm-hmm. there's such a huge amount going on right now, and you seem to be sitting right in the middle of a lot of it, um, for what I can tell. And so, I just was so excited to talk to you and hear your thoughts on jazz, on this current moment that we're living through, on race, on integral theory, and what that can bring to um, to this difficult, painful moment that we're living through um, together okay well um just on what you've laid out there
1: that that should take us <laughs> that, that's
0: a couple of hours right there man well, I, 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 I'm very open to a part two and three whatever we need to uh, to get through this okay
1: cool well where do I begin uh no this is quite a moment that we're in as a as a humanity, um, as a, as a nation in the United States, um, as people who identify with certain identities, Mm. um, and the question of, of how culture plays into this should be a recurring theme through our conversation. So I just want to plant that, that seed, but, um, I think one of the key things when we talk about race, um, because I'm speaking to you and speaking to your particular audience, I like to take my response to that issue to a place in the many discussions and conversations and dialogues and, and panels that I've actually been on over the last several months since, uh, the, the killing of of George Floyd and the murder of uh, Brianna Taylor um, that I haven't really taken it there, but I think this is so fundamental that I want to start off with it. So I think race, when you look at it from a deeper spiritual place, is you know one of the many ways that. Human beings, in this case, um, Western people, Western men in particular, um, have used to amplify the ego and to separate human beings based in certain categories. And then, based on that separation, to build structures. Institutions that solidify the separation in a hierarchical caste like fashion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I I think that that race is a is a divider, is a a categorization of human beings and human reality. Um, And it would it was actually set up to do just that. And we can go into all the details in the history on that, but I think fundamentally that's what race is. Now, to be a little more specific, race has to do with looking at human beings and creating uh, types, stereotypes, myths, based on the outer external... Physiological components of human beings, particularly their phenotype, um, the the you know their skin color, um, the shape of their heads, and I mean all kind of stuff. That's all about external appearance, and then imputing upon that external appearance as connected to you know certain um, geographic and historical origins and such. Uh, certain characteristics now if we can just take a step back from that and just just look at it like that we could realize how absurd it is on its face from an i first person perspective hmm. one's outer appearance one's quote unquote race uh does not determine how i think uh what i'm interested in um How I necessarily see and perceive um, doesn't determine whether I'm at a uh, traditional uh, center of gravity, modern center of gravity, postmodern, or above, whether that's integral or metamodern. Your race doesn't determine that Mm. from a first-person perspective. Um, From a second-person perspective... um, you know, the we space or us or the I-thou relationship, um, it gets a little more tricky (laughs) Hmm. because at the first person perspective, if we believe that the idea, the concept of race has validity and that's actually part of our belief system, then the way we see and behave in the world will actually Um, impart uh, some real, some reality to how I interact with other people. Okay. So when I talk about that we space and I say it's tricky, it, it is that what we call culture, if encoded with race, then that becomes a part of our value system and that type of things. If we can look at race for the Maya, the illusion that it actually is, um, then we could start to disentangle ourselves from that particular identity marker, uh, and focus on the more beneficent and generative aspects of culture, uh, values, um, tools and meanings that we use to make sense of the world, to engage in the world, to create. um, It's much easier to do that. Um, And then you get to the it or the, you know, third person. And, uh, you know, you have objective reality. Now, if your first person and your second person actually incorporates race then your third-person objective reality is going to show up (laughs) in your institutions, in your systems, in your structures. You see what I mean? And And the laws. And your laws, absolutely. And it does. It does. So so that's a way of looking at it to kind of disentangle it um, from those levels. But I start out by saying that race is just one more tool of the ego – to separate and to create structures, whether it's subjective, intersubjective, or objective structures, uh,
0: to separate, divide,
1: and categorize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I I really appreciate you saying the the second person, the we space is tricky. Um, <laughs> first thought was just like all relationships are tricky, and then. Right. And then, and then, you know, the second thought that came came to to my mind around this is, you know, how, from the perspective of, uh, as you said, encoding race in the in the second person, the racial identity, and particularly the white identity, that has been becoming even more clear to me. Not just on a conceptual level, which is always it's been pretty clear from the beginning, but like on an emotional level mm. as well. Mm that this is an identity that exists it's part of my, it, it influences who I take myself to be. It's part of what's in, it's not determining it as you say, but it's influent in a deep and often unconscious ways influences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who I am in any given moment. Mm. And I, I, you know, I can see this conditioning arise at times and it's like, Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, not owning that part of my identity in the first person, like, like not being like, oh, this whiteness is part of who I am. That seems like the, in the classic move of pushing something into the, into the shadows. Mm-hmm. Make, and it seems like that's the state we exist in right now racially. It's just automatically with that conditioning that you come into it, born into it, there is this giant shadow. That is so true, man. Um, because we
1: live in a racialized uh, society, you know as children, we grow up, and you know if you if you're dealing with a two, three year old and they're playing with other kids, they're they I mean, they don't give a crap about you know right. you know that kind of stuff, but because it's encoded. In our language, um, in media, it's just encoded in so many aspects of our social cultural structures that that awareness becomes encoded um, and is and is clear, but it gets down into the unconscious. Yes. Level, see, now with, with black folks, you know, black Americans in particular. Uh that kind of uh understanding and realization, it can't stay at the subconscious level. It it um or unconscious level because you mm-hmm. know, we are so confronted with race racialism, racialist ideas, racism, all of those things that have to do with race. Um so much, and in so many ways, that it's less a subject than an object. It's both a subject and an object for Black folks. So we don't we don't have the, uh, and I put this in quotes, luxury of not being aware of it. But the thing about this moment, that this crisis and this multi level, meta level crisis, is we mm. crises we're, we're referring to. The opportunity that is there is for race to go from a unconscious, subconscious, subjective place to a more overt, you know, objective place in our understanding of it, not just from a third-person perspective in terms of laws, institutions, structures, but how it actually does involve us. On the first and second person level, so that we can say, hmm, we can analyze it, we could, we could be reflective about it, we could say, wow, I wasn't quite aware, you know, particularly for quote unquote white folks, I wasn't aware of how much this actually um, is a part of not only my life. But the way I have been in the world, and and again, see, this is very, this is this is some very um, touchy areas that end up because of the way it's dealt with, triggering a lot mm. of people. Because when I say this, I think that your listeners can tell that I'm being very careful not to um, throw shade, to use a vernacular expressive uh, expression, or. Uh, lay guilt or blame particularly on an individual or even to look at folks as a group okay because it is really important to take advantage of this moment this 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 opportunity to reflect and contemplate the role that race has played and continues to play and to actually be critical to think critically about it and look at what can we do to not allow race to be as deterministic to the life chances of so many people pro or con what can we do to make sure that as we deal with one another you and i are having a conversation here that Now, we're talking about the subject of race, but if we weren't talking about the subject of race and we were talking about something that may not have anything to do ostensibly with race, to not allow race to come in in such a way that it gets into the way of us actually communicating based on our commonality, based on the things that we could do and structure and work on together, you know, not to deny race as implicated in the environment that we're in because we're in the environment. And I think that the, the problem with a lot of folks who identify as white is that they had the ability to not even be aware or care or it didn't impact them in that way. Yeah. But I, I think that there seems to be so many people now not only asking themselves these questions and having these conversations, but are actually, you know, in their organizations saying, Look, we have to deal with this. And I, I think this particularly younger generations. I'm I'm Approaching 60, man. So I'm talking about younger generations who are like saying enough is enough. We got to deal with this. So it's bringing up so much. And I just think there's an opportunity for us to grow and learn and to advance beyond where we have been um, Mm. as a nation for so long. Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. There's something in, in what you're saying that, that just strikes really home to me. And, and part of what I've noticed in the exploration of of race, um, in, in my first person experience, you know, in the, the actual meditating on race. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one, it, it's just so obvious to me as a meditator, having that having had that training, that the, the phenomenology of, of, of this is so real, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's the experience of taking the unconscious bias test on, on the website, you know, Harvard's website and feeling the difference in the the body mind going from white faces to black faces and mm-hmm. feeling this shift of like, suddenly I'm not moving as quickly. I feel like slower and there's a heaviness mm. and, you are know, feeling this distinct shift in the body mind and knowing mm. conceptually there's, this doesn't make sense. You know, uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't add up on a conceptual level, but at the somatic level, it's right. real, it's real. And it's, the, that is it's so the, true. And I, to me, that, that's something I think the meditative, Traditions maybe have to offer if we if we could retool them, you know, for that purpose. Um, you know, that's what I've been doing in my own personal work, taking big mind, you know, Di- mm. uh, Diane and Gempo's work, and being like, oh, well, I guess I've never really s- sat there for a while and and seen what I notice as a white person, right? You know, it's like yeah. wow, yeah, yeah never no, done that absolutely, absolutely. And I think
1: when you mention body mind, that's so key. Because we've been alluding to integral, um, and I use the first, second, third person, I, we, it uh, uh, construction as a, a way of really talking about the same ideas. But if we look at, and I presume that your uh, listeners are for the most part in, uh, aware of Ken Wilbur's four quadrants, if we look at the upper right quadrant of the body the brain the nervous system then there's so much work to be done there the somatic work that is so needed and this is where and i've become very recently familiar with this work within um psychology mm. um for example a gentleman named resma Menachem. My grandmother's hands is the book that mm-hmm. he wrote
0: mm-hmm.
1: that it very powerfully deals with what he calls cultural somatics. That there's actual trauma embedded in our bodies, whether mm. we identify as black, white, and he includes police officers in this, which I think is very good. Um, that this trauma that over generations has been embedded and carried forth and that there are ways of actually dealing with that integrating that healing that and mm-hmm. i think that's that's i think the meditative work and the contemplative work is a key aspect of it and then there are other ways of i think somatically dealing with that within our body so all of this is part of the process that i think that so many of us need to go through to be able to move uh, beyond where we have been stuck for so long,
0: mm. I get the, I get this strong sense as you're talking. I, I, I imagine you know this possibility of like the experience of race and identity around race and the pain mm-hmm. that it's inherent in that identity right now. Mm-hmm. On any you know, th- there's pain. There is pain. Yes, and. I I just get the sense of a possibility of liberation of a certain kind of freedom um you know not as a potential and and that's a really Good beautiful time. thing big time now
1: let me ask you a question
0: um as a buddhist when you
1: talk about freedom and liberation yeah what does that mean from a buddhist <laughs> perspective ah uh,
0: For me, it, it it has two movements. Uh, one is the waking up movement, mm. which is kind of where I was pointing to there. You know, this feeling of like this heavy, dense, contracted, self-referencing being uh, released and emptied out and, and seeing, oh, what makes this contraction up? It's just sensations. It's just this you know, it's nothing we have to actually ultimately be scared of at, at the basic level, at the basic level. Um, and yet, (laughs) and yet then then there's the self and the ego and, and, and it's the, so for, for me, part of liberation is the dissolving of that self sense and finding a freedom beyond what I think I am. Um, and then the other part is the you know, as as Wilbur would talk about the ascending and the descending, it's the waking down or the coming back into life from that more free perspective and seeing, oh, well, yes, that's true. And mm. this conditioning still is intact. It still continues, even if I see that I'm not completely wrapped up in it. Mm. Um, and so I have to continue working with um the the particulars of my life because the absolute doesn't negate the particular. It just mm. highlights, you know, that it's a both and situation. We're both vast, incomprehensible. And and you know, to me, that's our shared commonality as be as like beings. You know, we share this one consciousness that we I don't know, that <laughs> makes us who we are, I guess. And then at the but at the same time we have different conditioning. So That for me, the non-dual awakening is the realization that there is no complete transcendence, you know, that we have to always return back to our lives as as it is and to the conditioning that we've inherited, the intergenerational trauma, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and that like, this is the work actually as a bodhisattva, someone who wants to awaken, not just for themselves, but for all beings like that commitment, that aspiration, which is so deep in the Buddhist tradition, really, for me, it means having to come back to and engage with the particulars of my life with that liberation in mind, you know, that it's possible. I know at some level, it's possible, but I don't always realize it <laughs> in every context and situation. And that's, to me, that's the collective uh, awakening work that, that's, that's needing to be
1: done. Thank you so much for for that answer. Um, And there's a word that we haven't mentioned. You mentioned pain, so we have alluded to it, but this is a word that I think within Buddhism is really key, suffering. Mm, Yes. We go through this process that you're talking about so that we can address and alleviate suffering ourselves and to help others do the same. So, at you know, our challenge in the 21st century uh, is not to, you know, and, and God bless uh, the tradition of monks, you know, who go mm-hmm. off, in you know, so I, you know, I am not critiquing that. So, those who want to take that path, but I think for most of us, spiritual realization is going to have to do with liberating and freeing our own mind, body, soul, spirit, right? Yes. For the purpose of engaging with and helping others alleviate their suffering also, right? So so, so I really appreciate what, what you're saying. And what I'd like to do is share just uh, two paragraphs from a book called
0: Turning the Wheel, Oh, cool. Is this Charles Johnson? This is Charles book? Johnson. Oh, cool. The, Looking forward to this. The
1: National Book Award winning um, author. This book, Turning the Wheel, is subtitled Essays on Buddhism and Writing. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Charles Johnson um, is a, a uh, professor emeritus from the University of Washington in Seattle. He is uh, just a—I mean, unbelievable writer and thinker. Um, numerous novels, one of which won the National Book Award, Middle Passage. Um, he's written fiction and nonfiction, um, screenplays. Uh, he's re- I mean, this guy has received all kind of awards. Guggenheim, MacArthur, uh, he's incredible. And he's a, he's been a, bit, a Buddhist for maybe 40 years. And so when we have someone who is such a great writer, thinker. Um, and by the way, his PhD, I mean, he's covered, you know, the whole history of Western philosophy, you know, so he's dealing with well in the East and the West. Let's see what he has to say about the intersection of Buddhism and race and such. And I think these two paragraphs from this book, from the chapter entitled Asanga by Another Name, which starts the black experience in America, like the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, begins with suffering. Okay? But further in, now check out what he says here. The emphasis in Buddhist teachings on letting go of the fabricated false sense of self positions issues of race as foremost among samsaric illusions along with all the essentialist conceptions of difference that have caused so much human suffering and mischief since the 18th century. It frees one from dualistic models of epistemology that partition experience into separate box-like compartments of mind and body, self and other, matter and spirit. These divisions one sees are ontologically the correlates of racial divisions found in South African apartheid and American segregation and are just as pernicious Mm. more than anything else. The Dharma teaches mindfulness, the practice of being here and now in each present moment without bringing yesterday's racial yesterday's racial agonies into today or projecting oneself, one's hopes and longings into a tomorrow that never comes. You watch the prismatic play of desires and emotions, for example, joy, fear, pride, and so-called black rage as they arise in awareness, but without attachment or clinging to name and form, and then you let them go. One is especially free on this path from the belief in an enduring, quote, personal identity, unquote, and I endlessly called upon to prove its worth and deny its inferiority in a world that so often mirrors back only negative images of the black self. Yet one need not cling to, quote, positive, unquote, images either. For these two are essentially empty of meaning. Indeed, you recognize emptiness, sunyata, as the ultimate nature of reality. In my own fiction, I have worked to dramatize that insight in novels such as The Ox Herding Tale, 1982, a slave narrative that serves as the vehicle for exploring Eastern philosophy. Middle Passage. Nineteen ninety, a sea adventure tale about the slave trade, and a rather Buddhist African tribe called the Al-Muzeri, and Dreamer, nineteen ninety eight, a fictional account of the last two year two years of Martin Luther King's life that highlights his global ecumenical spirituality. Isn't that something?
0: Yeah, it's um, really fascinating to to hear him applying his kind of dharma understanding to these issues. It's inspiring.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you know, for your audience, I I wanted them to know that there are there are individuals, there are thinkers, there are people out here who have actually done work from this angle of insight. And I, and I think it's really important to to be aware of them. I mean, there's another uh, scholar, bell hooks, yes, who's uh, both a Christian and a Buddhist. You know, there's the great jazz musician Herbie Hancock, who is a long time Buddhist. I, I think uh, your listeners would uh, would 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 do well to check them out, you know, for themselves, and perhaps you could even have them on your show. <laughs> nice,
0: thank you that's great thank you for the references and mm-hmm. uh, um, it's a gr- growing list of inspiring people who um, I I, I, lo- I love seeing this non the non-duality the wisdom of non-duality sort of being applied to to these sort of experiences of racial duality and you know in, in a way that's genuine that's not like a, a, a spiritual bypass because that right. I also see that also very commonly done Mm -hmm. you know it's like we're all one we don't need to deal with this stuff right Um, right. (laughs) it's like no no that's not not that one
1: (laughs) exactly i mean and on one level we are and and i guess that gets to the paradox of of our reality Mm. um you know on the human level the human plane because there is a truth to the fact that we are all one, and that we share in the ineffability of the source uh, of of uh, the fullness of emptiness, or you know, mm-hmm. in in all of these things that signify, because we're using human language, that the ineffable, you know, that our origins, our source from and through which all things come and flow Mm -hmm. and towards which we're moving, right? But in between time, (laughs) you know, on this human level, in this particular incarnation, you know, we have to deal with the reality of materiality, of the material plane that we're on, Mm -hmm. you know. And that materiality itself is, you know, going to bring suffering. You know, uh, the du- duality will do that. Uh, non-duality is oneness. But yes. we, you know, we, we have to navigate, we have to navigate skillfully, using skillful means um, between and among us. And that's where we get to wisdom. You know, I mean, wisdom allows us to, you know, deal with, and here's the jazz model, to be able to, you know, play to with these dualities and to mm-hmm. do it in such a way. Because if, if it's wisdom, then it takes in consideration I, we, it. It takes in consideration the dual and the non-dual. It takes in consideration the reality of the oneness and the particularity Mm. of the many. Yes. It it does all of that, right? And in specific situations, it's able to integrate mind, heart, gut Mm. in such a way that what you contribute, whether it's uh, what you say or what you do, you're able to contribute in such a way that it helps to lessen suffering and generate something better. Something better, man. That's what we have to move towards. Mm.
0: It, I've heard you talk a little bit about um, this this phrase "blood thinking." Ralph mm. Ellison. I think it was a term that maybe Ralph Ellison used. Yes. And ethnocentrism. And and we haven't t- really talked about development much, but I, mm-hmm. I, know, I know that's a big part of, um, you know, the, the same kind of modeling that you use, I, I find really helpful, you know, the egocentric, the ethnocentric world, it's the same stuff we worked with Diane on, um, right. you know, in that training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't help but think about that with, with what we're talking about, because it seems like there are you know, you can have a non-dual experience at any stage of development. And so it makes sense to me that someone, if they're, if they really are rooted in a kind of blood thinking or ethnocentrism, like me and my tribe, like is the primary, that's who I'm primarily identified with. Right. Um, That, that to have a non-dual experience could be so easy to interpret that as like, we're all one and, you know, and this oneness is White, you know, it's black, <laughs> <laughs> or or it's black, or it's you know whatever the, right. the identity is, right? Uh, um, but but it seems like what you're pointing to here, it's and and what um, Charles Johnson was pointing to is a kind of somehow a deeper kind of non-duality uh, with 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 racial identity itself being something that 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 gets kind of opened up and unhooked from in a, in a particular way. Absolutely. As far as the blood thinking, I mean, that that
1: points directly to like an ethnocentric identity. You know, I am um, connected to others based on familial, you know, kin relations that I can trace back to a particular ethnicity. Okay, yes. So uh, but but blood thinking goes actually beyond that and goes into race. So the idea is that, um, now this is just gonna sound so ridiculous because what we know about, you know, blood, different blood types, but that actually different racial groups have different kinds of blood. And that based on that blood coursing through their veins, that the racial blood that, it, that it's deterministic to aspects of their personality, to their behavior, to their potential. I I mean, you know, in in a very... I mean, I'm sure there's more sophisticated ways, but I'm trying to put it in a very basic uh, way of describing it so that, you know, frankly, the absurdity of it can be be clear. But this is actually connected to a word that uh, Johnson used in that passage, essentialism.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, If you have an idea that based on someone's um, racial characteristics or some type of identity characteristic um, or their blood, that that is determinative Mm -hmm. of other things, particularly when you mark those things as negative, that's essentialism. You know, in other words, it's unchanging. That's the way it is. And that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, so that's that's that essentialist idea, and yes, these are very, very, very problematic, you know, to to say the least. But the problem and the paradox of someone at an ethnocentric um, stage of development having a oneness state experience is that, well, I, would, I shouldn't say the paradox. I, I should say that if at whatever stage of development, egocentric, ethnocentric, and so on, if one meditates, if one goes within and goes through that process and actually has that kind of experience, I think the tendency is not only for one's own center of gravity or stage of development uh, to open up, I think that there is an the potential for evolutionary advancement through that experience. Mm. So there is a, a contradiction between having a oneness experience, but then interpreting that experience that this is, you know only because of my ethnic group, or only my ethnic group can have this experience, or my racial group. That's contradictory, it, doesn't, it really doesn't make sense. So then one would hope that that would then cause people to to start to shake up some of those models of human uh, interaction and framing of perception so that they can then level up to some other um, wider scopes of of, uh, of understanding and wider scopes of perception so that the way you see things is wider, deeper, uh, and more evolved than that more limited way of seeing. I mean, you could look at evolution and these developmental levels, I mean, that on a very basic way as maturity. I mean, these are ways of becoming more mature on the path from knowledge to wisdom. You know, I, I, that's kind of a way I would put it, because I think it's really important for us to translate these terms and these models mm. in a way that more people can really grasp, um, because, uh, so many people are not aware of them, but if we can bridge through certain terms and certain models and certain metaphors, ways for people to grasp it and grok it, I think that's, that's really crucial. Hmm. Hmm.
0: I, I, Greg, I wanted to talk a little bit with you about um, uh, more about identity because mm-hmm. this is so much at the heart of uh, what we're talking about. And we talked about first person and second person identity stuff, like my me, sub- my subjective experience, and then we, us. Um this seems to be at the heart the, the paradox between the individual and group identity mm-hmm. seems to be at the heart of so much cultural uh, i don't know war right warfare right now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um something that that hadn't really really occurred to me that that clearly before really starting to kind of dive more into reading some of the some of the work around um you know, um, r- racial awareness, mindful of race, Ruth King's book has been someone some that I found really interesting and helpful. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she points out something that, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's like, when, when you are identified with a certain relative identity that is currently being marginalized in your culture, or oppressed in a, in a, in clear structural ways. Mm-hmm. Like when you grow up with that identity, that identity becomes more central. And you talked about this basically in the beginning, you know, it's like, you, you, you can't just avoid the shadow because it's right there, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that's something that I think maybe, maybe is, it's, it's been interesting for me to, to, to learn more about the nature of identity. Cause it's, it's clear to me, yes, that all these relative identities are empty on some level. Like I, I have some sense of that. Um, They're all contingent. They're all empty. And there's the the, the big, the big, and that keeps on kind of coming back in. Mm -hmm. It's like, and some of these identities are up for us and in us because they need attention because you know, there's some sort of force pushing on us that's actually trying to get us to wake up and saying, "Hey, look here! This thing that's so painful, this is important. You've got to look at this." Yeah, that's, um, true. that's true. Yeah, and and it, you know, I think it's maybe that's the the blinder that I've had on as a white person mm-hmm. for, for so long is just seeing, like you said, how I've had the luxury to not. um, look at that identity to not actually sit with it to to kind of spiritualize it away to be like oh well yeah i know it's empty right uh, as if that's sufficient
1: yeah i hear you and but see um and let's just linger here for a second okay please (laughs) one of the things that um i mean identity if you you mentioned ralph ellison um his classic 1952 novel invisible man is primarily about the theme of identity. And so, and identity is what's driving so much of culture wars and the conflicts that we see out here.
0: Mm-hmm. So we
1: have to deal with identity um, with as much wisdom as we can. Now let's talk about white identity for a second. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is from my perspective and my studies that's so tragic about white identity is not just, you know, that, uh, there are certain privileges and and benefits that come just by virtue of one's outer appearance. Um, and because that's true, uh, you know, people talk about white superiority, white supremacy, but, they rarely talk about the tragedy of whiteness. And to me, part of the tragedy of whiteness is what had to be given up in order to claim that white identity. And what I mean by that is, see, now let's talk about the, the, the ethnic or the ethnocentric. A lot of times, you know, we who are modern, postmodern, and, and, and beyond... You know, look very look down upon the ethnocentric, frankly. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. But there are riches there. Hmm. There are riches in the in, in 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 ethnic identity. There's riches of ways of life and ways of seeing life that I mean look at ethnicity from a perspective of a garden, and that you have these beautiful flowers of different colors that are populated the garden different ethnicities function that way now what i'm actually presenting to you is my northern bias i was born in new york in brooklyn mm. new york i grew up as a new yorker so to me when i engage with and, and, and I'm around different ethnicities that's just a way of being. So I mean I have no problem being around people of an Italian heritage, um, Jewish heritage, Polish, you know Eastern European. I mean that's I grew up around that and I grew up eating different kinds of food and, and incorporating certain terms, uh, as a New Yorker, that comes from those different ethnic groups. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. mix. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But 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 one of the trade-offs, tragic trade-offs, was this idea that, okay, we who are white, and now let's get specific. We are talking about WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, So we have to get very specific here. We will allow you into whiteness if you let go of your ethnic heritage, Mm. erase that, become become white, and you will then achieve certain benefits and access, social, political, economic access, What's lost when that happens? <laughs> what are the riches that are lost? when you, I have a piece that I wrote. I had a series in a um, uh, platform called All About Jazz, online mm-hmm. platform. Mm-hmm. And the series was um, dealing with race and jazz. And I had a piece. My, my very first piece was called Jazz Versus Racism. And in this piece, I start with the phrase I said, jazz caused me to not become a racist. And that is referencing my own evolution from the late 70s being in junior high school and high school at around the time that Roots came on and everyone is watching Alex Haley's Roots as depicted you know, on television and dealing with many for the very first time, the legacy of enslavement. Then me going to college and me really getting into history, learning details about the slave trade and Jim Crow and that type of thing. And developing real deep resentment towards whiteness and white people to the point where I was on the edge of hatred. Mm. But what saved me from going down that rabbit hole, jazz. In high school, I fell in love with jazz music. I would listen to it in the morning when I get up. I would come home after school and listen to it. As I did my homework, I would go to sleep listening to jazz. And I fell in love with certain artists. And some of those artists were, quote unquote, white. So in this piece, I talk about my love of the playing of saxophonist named Zoot Sims, great tenor saxophonist in the Lester Young style of uh, of saxophone playing. I talk about my love of Paul Desmond, an alto saxophonist, famous for playing in the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Songs like Take Five and Blue Rondo a la Turk and such. Loved his playing. And Phil Woods, who is a post Charlie Parker saxophonist, one of the greatest um, alto saxophonists of the 20th century, loved and loved the, the work of Phil Woods. Those people, including my teacher, Cesar DeMauro, who was ethnically Italian, Um, I, I learned from them. I I loved their playing so much that when it came to me going over, the, jumping off the cliff of hatred and therefore racism, hating other people because of their outer appearance mm-hmm. and their and their history, was my heartfelt love and my soulful appreciation for their music. I couldn't go there. So you, you see a connection, you know, a cultural connection for me um, that my identity as a jazz guy, as a jazz lover, disallowed me. I actually connected the aesthetic and the ethical. Now, I didn't at the time, I didn't call it that. I didn't have that framing. But now I can say that's what happened. It was the aesthetic and the ethical that were married that prevented me from a racial identity that became racist. So we have in our identity, we have all kind of identities. And they're not just based on our identity markers, whether it's gender, uh, so-called race, um, uh, sexual orientation or yeah, I mean, and there are other markers. It's not just those. I mean, right. Buddhism is a part of your identity. Religion, yeah. Religion is a part of your identity.
0: Politics.
1: Yeah, all of that's in there, man. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things is to look at those identities, and you know, embrace them, but not be confined to any of them. That's the thing. Now, what's a way of doing that? There's a term that I get from the philosopher, Anthony Appiah. And then there's another philosopher, uh, Daniel Allen, who's at, at Harvard. Uh, Appiah has been at Princeton, Harvard. He's now at NYU in the law school. He writes every week for the New York Times Magazine. You see his work in, you know, as a public intellectual in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, Daniel Allen is a political philosopher um, who wrote a best-selling book on the Declaration of Independence. She also uses this term, rooted cosmopolitanism. Hmm. This term for me is a term I so embrace because for me, the rooted part allows us to accept the various identities we have and to be rooted in them, but not to be confined by them through the cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism says I can be a citizen of the world and of the cosmos itself.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: So I can mm -hmm. be rooted and cosmopolitan at the same time. So to me, this is an inherently to to use a spiral dynamics term, second tier notion Hmm. that embraces the rooted and the cosmopolitan at the same time. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it transcends the rooted, but it includes it also without repressing it. See, so to me, rooted cosmopolitanism is one way from a philosophical perspective to deal with identity in a way that doesn't limit us and doesn't, you know, uh, uh, get us so involved in the samsara of the identities that, you know, we lose sight of the the cosmic oneness, you know, the 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 cosmic unity that's also there.
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Thank you for uh, introducing us to that term, rooted cosmopolitanism. Um, and who did you say the 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 author or the theorist was? That you- Anthony Appia, A P
1: P I A H. Um, he is um, within the philosophical community i mean he's one of the top philosophers you know in the world and has been so for for decades um but he's also a public intellectual which is why i mean you can Mm -hmm. look him up you'll see um his work that is not just in the philosophical discipline i mean he's he's writing about ideas um to everyday people. it's one of the reasons I, I, I so appreciate his work. And then Danielle Allen also does the same thing. Um, Danielle Allen, these are also two folks that I think in integral conversations, um, or related, you know, these are people who need to be brought in. Charles Johnson needs to be brought in because these are thinkers on such a level that if, they may not be engaging in the scaffolding of integral and say meta-modern thought, but integralists and meta-modernists, I think, need to deal with their thought because they mm. are vibing and riffing and swinging at that level in their work. And, and I'm frankly, in my own work, I look at my work as a
0: as a bridge. Yeah, I was just thinking you you're really bridging a lot here.
1: Yeah, that that's 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 I, I look at that as one of my roles. I mean, I mm-hmm. have been writing for integral life or submitting and contributing content since twenty ten. And that uh occurred because I looked at their content and I said, Okay, well let me see how many how many black folks in and dealing with say the black intellectual tradition, black uh cultural and artistic tradition, black American in particular. Let me just check it out. And there was a handful. I said, well, wow, I've got all this this great knowledge of Black American history, culture, intellectual life, and jazz in particular, blues and jazz. Let me, let me contribute content. So that was to bridge. And mm. I, I see it. I, you know, it's really interesting how it's really bearing fruit, you know, and, and part bearing fruit to this very conversation after we met, yeah, um, you know, uh, for an intricately based, integrally based, uh, facilitation, um, event or, or, or workshop that we worked
0: on these ideas together. So I'm, I'm yes. very grateful. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Um, gosh, there's so much in, in what you just said, um, Two, two directions. My, I want to go. One, one is back. Maybe just back to something you were saying about the rooted cosmopolitanism, and f- for me, that that phrase—it's so interesting that it's organ—it's an organic um, phrase. You know that the rootedness elicits the you know the imagery of plants and. Right. And from you know, I I I, I noticed such a strong connection to that and to what we were talking about earlier. You, you were talking about the riches of ethnocentrism. For for me, a lot of what's brought me back full circle, you know, to wanting to learn about my own ethnic, the good and the bad, you know, mm-hmm. of my of my ethnic uh, ancestry. It's like actually just the wanting to be able to know how to grow food. Because oh, wow. my grandparents are still alive. They've been, you know, gardening and farming for like their, their lives. And I really want to learn from them and feel like, you know, this is a really useful skill and something that's, you know, to put your hands in in the dirt. There's something just so yeah, somatic and healing. And I don't know. It's just, it's such a good thing. Oh, no, thing. absolutely,
1: man. We're talking about nature. Yes. You know, getting, going out and getting sunshine, walking in the grass, walking in the woods, Yes. I mean, these are things that we, you know, if we can avail ourselves of them. We need to do it. You know, folks who live in urban areas in the, in the concrete jungle, and I know because I've lived there. I mean, I'm fortunate now to live in a place where I do have a, a beautiful grass-filled backyard with a little garden, you know. Mm. Uh, we need to to, to touch Base and get back in touch with with that aspect and what you talk about. and Excuse me for interrupting you, but no, you're fine. when you're talking about you know your grandparents, man, that's so key. Being in touch with our ancestors, our elders. Mm. See, that's what I'm talking about. So as we deal in these highfalutin, you know, uh, ideas and concepts and we we got to remember where we came from you know and we need to touch base with where we came from i think this is something that's a journey for humanity now let's say if we talk about the cutting edge of thought let's just let's just say that you know integral and metamodern thought is aspects of the cutting edge let's just let's just say that's true one of the things that that level of thought is going through right now is how do we deal with the indigenous? How do we deal with the early human origins? How do we deal with our uh, ancestral underpinnings in a way that we don't deny or repress it? Now, there's a concept within integral that is a very important concept to very briefly mention called the pre-trans fallacy, which is, you go through a unitive state experience, right? And that unitive state experience is interpreted in a similar way as the oneness, the unity that we actually experience when we're in our mother's womb. So the idea of the pre-trans fallacy says that, you know, what we're doing is going back to the kind of oneness with nature that early humans had, okay? And so there are people like, oh, no, de- avoid the pre-trans fallacy because we got to remember and and all the development of, hu- of humanity and all of the problems with looking at ideas and, and, and philosophy from that perspective, you know? There's an incredible postmodern critique of, modernity and a modern a modern critique of the traditional and the ethnocentric and i mean each stage yes. critiques the other you know that's the way it goes but it's like when you want if you're at the cutting edge how the heck you're going to be talking about dealing with you know going back to purple mm. well what riches are there also
0: mm-hmm
1: What can we, if you are transcending and including, we know about the transcending. What are you including from that? Maybe we need to include a unitive connection with nature while we maintain the separation. We are not, we are part of nature, right? But the modern uh, mentality and modernity dealt with the separation from nature, Yes. And look at the result of that. So how about we look at nature as and the cosmos as alive? It's alive and we're part of it and we're in communication with it. That's not pre-trans fallacy. That's incorporating an aspect of consciousness from that that period, but doing it full well aware of all the development that has happened since then. You see what I'm saying? So I'm saying when you talk about, man, your grandparents mm-hmm. and we talk about ancestors, yeah. this is something that I think, you know, not only as Americans, I think humanities, this has to deal with it. You know, we have to deal with what was lost as we developed. You know, What can we re-embrace while we stay modern, postmodern and keep moving forward as we integrate with technology? Because that's a whole nother topic, you know what I mean? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's a there's a cat named uh, uh, a guy who I've recently uh, touched base with and, and connected with. His name is Greg Enriquez, and he has something called a theory of knowledge, where you have um, matter on on the bottom, you know, like in a in a cone. So you know, if you talk about the just these developments, you start with you know from the Big Bang. What do you have? You have you have matter that develops. And then you have life that came out of matter. And then you have mind that came out of life. And then you had culture that came out of that, right? And I love that, model because I'm a culture guy. (laughs) But He says, we've got metaculture next, where we talk about how we're going to integrate with all this technology. So as we, as our technological capability has so far out, exceeded our moral growth and development and our spiritual growth and development for the most part, when talking about humanity, we have to see what are we going to re-embrace as we Mm. move forward? Because there's values and cultures and some traditions that is going to help make us whole, make us whole that tragedy of whiteness that I talked about. Yes. Man, if you go back and and tap into some of the pre-white <laughs> identity frames, it's going to help. I think heal that, man. Yeah. You know, I mean, th- and that's just one. I think of several things that 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 quote unquote white folks can do. That's not the only thing, you know. But that's just that's just one aspect of dealing with um, you know growth and development beyond that aspect of identity.
0: That is so cool. I, I, um, Greg. I want to share a, a quote that I, I from my great grandfather, who's um, Palestinian, mm. uh, and this is a perfect example of what you're saying. You know, for for me, it really hit home. It's so simple, this rooted wisdom. Mm. Um, but but he said on planting olive trees, you know, which which take 25, 30 years often to bear fruit. Um, he said they they have planted, and we ate. Mm. We plant. And others will eat. Ooh, that, see, that's, that's wisdom, man. Yeah. Big time. time.
1: That's wisdom. You know what I mean? It's like, and the thing is about, you know, if you cannot make the complex simple and relate to people, there's a problem. There's an issue. You got to be able to break stuff down or explain stuff in a way that it lands for people and it has profound implications and extensions that is so beautiful what you shared man
0: it it is and it, and it and i can see as you're talking about the spiral you know there's there's this uh i can see it playing out at at, a, at another level now where it's like hey we've got to get this basic wisdom again at at at, at, at this level at this global level mm-hmm. like we can't you know continue to to harvest all of the resources without, you know, replenishing them.
1: (laughs) It's like, this is just not going to work.
0: That's right.
1: Exactly, man. Yeah.
0: After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.